0: Good afternoon. My name is Mackenzie Bean. I'm a managing editor with Becker's Hospital Review. For the next 40 minutes or so, I'll be your moderator for our session today on clinical leadership during COVID-19. Today's goal is really just to have a meaningful conversation about what's next for hospitals and health systems responding to the pandemic, what challenges remain, and how clinical leaders can care for not just their teams and their colleagues, but also themselves. So before we begin today's session, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our panelists. Holly Cormack is the Chief Nursing Officer at Cottage Hospital in Woodsville, New Hampshire. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips is the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer at Renton, Washington-based Providence. And Dr. Marjorie Bessel is the Chief Clinical Officer at Phoenix-based Banner Health. We are so grateful that you all Took some time out of your very busy days to join us for their conversation. So thank you so much. I thought thank we could start off today's panel um, just talking about the current state of COVID-19 at your respective organizations. What where is your organization at on the curve right now? Are you seeing COVID-19 patient volumes dropping, plateauing? I think it'd be a good sense to see where you all are before we get more into before we get into some of the more in-depth topics. So
1: maybe Holly, you could start. Sure. Um, So I am at a critical access hospital in uh, northern New Hampshire. And so in the state of New Hampshire, things uh, now are settling down a little bit. But if you look at the state and geographically, the way we are laid out of the southern part of the state uh, is where the concentration of a lot of our cases are in the northern part of the state. They seem to be just sort of filtering our way. Um, We have our eyes closely on what's going on in Massachusetts right now. Um, What happens in Boston affects us greatly. Um, The border is very fluid between southern New Hampshire and Massachusetts. We have a lot of folks who live in New Hampshire because we're tax-free, live free or die, and work in Massachusetts. And so that does mean that we have a lot of going over, back, and forth in the borders. Um, In the recent weeks, um, about a week and a half now, the testing in New Hampshire has really ramped up. And so we are seeing a lot more positives per day, but we're also doing a lot more testing. So the number we're really keeping our eyes on is that hospitalization rate. And that's actually decreased in the state of New Hampshire. We're initially hovering around 16 or 17%, and right now we're only at 11%. So we feel um, cautiously optimistic, I guess, is the right thing to say right now with where we are in the state we're in. And in our our facility itself, we are starting to um, increase some of those uh, visits that we've put off in our um, primary cares, our radiology departments and our surgical services. So that's the state of where we are right now today.
0: Dr. Compton Phillips, how does that compare to what you are seeing?
2: Well, our system's a little different. Um, Providence is a 51 hospital system spread out over eight states, Um, and so we go from Texas, uh, from uh, as far north as Alaska, all the way down as far south as Orange County in California, and then as far east as Texas. Um, and so we cover a broad swath. And initially, at the, at the peak here on the West Coast, um, we had a, well over 800 patients a day in our hospital footprint with covid And we've come down over the past about three weeks to around 400 a day but we're hovering right in that range and it's not going down very fast it's down by ones or twos per day so we feel like we've we've come down off the peak but we've stabilized at this baseline level and now with reopening starting to happen of the economy in addition to surgeries um as 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 you heard um that we're anticipating we're going to start seeing at least probably localized second waves. Um, There is some concern right now, particularly in areas in Texas and in Alaska, where we might not have the infrastructure built to do um, sufficient testing, contact tracing and isolation that we might be looking at uh, and we're preparing for second peaks coming in, in some localized areas as we start to open up.
1: And Dr. Bessel, what are you
0: seeing at Banner?
1: Yeah, thank you. So uh, Banner Health is a multi-state uh, integrated healthcare delivery system. Also, we're in six states. We have um, almost 30 hospitals within our organization. And so you know, like, uh, like our previous presenter, uh, for her experience, our multi-state is in different stages So one of our uh, areas of location is in Colorado, which was hit fairly hard earlier on than what the state of Arizona and some of our other rural facilities are experiencing. And so those numbers have peaked and they're on their way down. And so we're incredibly thankful for all of that. In the state of Arizona, which is the largest component of where we deliver care for patients in the communities that we serve, I would describe us as plateau-ish. So uh, sort of like the Providence experience, we're, we're running um, in the 420-ish range for inpatients, and it's been hovering there for some uh, period of time, not, not going up, but not really rapidly decreasing at this time. In addition, there are hot spots uh, in certain areas within the state of Arizona where some of our facilities are experiencing more local community spread than others. As as was the experience in uh, New Hampshire, our testing is beginning to ramp up. Some of the scarce activities of either reagents and or swabs and or test media uh, have been lessening up, and so our testing is becoming more robust, uh, which has been helpful for the management as well as for meeting the demand of resuming elective surgery and elective procedures. In addition to that, uh, you know, we've experienced a very low level of infection rate in our healthcare workers, and we're finding that those generally when we're doing IgG antibody testing, which we've just um, begun here recently, that it looks like those percentages are likely going to match fairly consistently with what the community population prevalence is. So I I believe we have quite a long way to, to go, and I agree with, Um, Previous comments from from Amy that as the economy begins to open up, as businesses begin to open up, uh, that the impact of what that's going to be still remains somewhat unknown. And certainly those of us that are in the delivery component of the healthcare system remain cautious and concerned that potentially we'll see some upswing in the number of cases coming through all the different avenues where patients receive care. So whether it's on our teleactivity activity. Uh, whether it's with a drive-through test site, uh, whether it's in a a clinic, an urgent care, an emergency department, or ultimately hospitalization or ICU and ventilation. I think we're all cautious that we might see uh, some surge of that as the economy begins to open up.
0: So it sounds like there's definitely some cautious optimism, but at the same time, hospitals and health systems are still very much preparing for what's next and anticipating those future challenges. So with that in mind, what are some of your biggest clinical priorities, say, over the next few weeks? What's on the top of your mind right now? Do you want to hop on that one first, Dr. Quentin-Phillips?
2: You know, I would if I had heard the question, but my microphone fell out of my ear. (laughs) So can you say it again? No worries. Yeah.
0: What are some of your biggest clinical priorities over the next few weeks, just in terms of the economy reopening, anticipating some of those future challenges now that the surge levels are going down a bit?
2: Yeah, we've been using, it's a great question about, about what comes next. Um, and so uh, there, a couple background moments, um, just to, to center ourselves, that as the wave comes down of COVID, we're looking at the both um, ramping back up again of acute care needs. During the peak of the wave, we were seeing um, a third to 40% less acute MIs, acute strokes than we normally do. And we don't think that COVID cures heart attacks. So we believe that there's a significant unmet need for acute care. Um, and that we are are very rapidly ramping up the messages that we're here, we're safe, we're open, come on back, um, get your care taken care of, don't let your stroke complete without without coming in and getting treatment, right? So we're getting messages out about acute care. But also um, around around the more elective kinds of surgeries, as you heard mentioned before, um, because there's it's it's a false dichotomy to say something's either emergent or elective. That there's a lot of variations between those. So we're very rapidly bringing back patients who have things like tumors, um, you know, cancerous tumors that they need to get out to preserve their life. And and while we know that delaying for a month probably is not a life-threatening thing. For a patient, that's a horrible thing. So we're trying to get that going back again. In addition, all of chronic care and all of population health, we have to start figuring back out. So, so we're working very hard on bringing that back in, but we wanna do that in a way that sets us up for the future. And so as we get start, restarted, we're thinking about not, not getting started back the way we always have done, but how do we embed things that we leveraged very quickly with COVID care to be the way we do things around here normally in the future? How do we really use this moment to advance care into the 21st century? And so we're embedding telehealth and digital tools very deeply into the processes as we move forward, um, getting back started again. The other thing that we rapidly scaled up with COVID care and that we think is the way for us to move forward is we embedded research into virtually everything that we did, everything from clinical trials research to health services research, to our ability to use real world data to inform decisions moving forward. And so that's another thing as we get started, we wanna make sure that we leverage that capacity. Um, And last but not least is our link with advocacy that, as, as we restart the healthcare system, we have some big needs that we need to solve for in the country and can we use this post-COVID moment or this, this act two of a three-act play, this inter-COVID moment to really advance the needs for healthcare policy in the US? Things along the lines of we the, the fact that um, communities of color have appallingly worse health outcomes than others. Is is you know something that in one of the richest countries in the world should not be the case, and so now is now the moment that we can start advocating for universal capitated primary care for all, um, so that we can make sure people have their hypertension controlled and their diabetes managed, so that if they get COVID, they don't have uh, worse outcomes than others. So I think that right now, um, as we get started opening up the healthcare system we should start making decisions that do it in a way that creates a better outcome post-COVID than we had going into COVID.
0: I think you bring up a lot of different topics that um, I'm excited to dive deeper into as the panel progresses. Um, but first, let me just turn to Holly and Dr. Bessel, any other clinical priorities um, that you think would be important to add? Yeah, so- I think,
1: hey, this is, go ahead. Sorry about that. Uh, So this, Marchie, so I I agree with all the previous comments. I would add some other clinical priorities to that list. They're uh, very high on my list and on Banner Health's list. And so one of them uh, is both relevant to COVID, but also sort of where we're going next, uh, which is our new reality of making sure that we know how to manage both COVID reality as well as the usual and customary Uh, types of services that those in the communities that we serve need. Certainly, we know that elective surgeries and procedures, as were commented on before, are necessary uh, for those that are in the communities that we serve to maintain their good health. And it's just going to be a continual part of our reality that we're going to learn how to balance taking care of those that have COVID with those that need that regular care. And a lot of that is going to center around the concept of continual safety. Safety for our healthcare workers and safety for those that come into our facilities, wherever that might be, uh, for on site care. And so, exquisite attention to PPE, infection prevention practices, um, taking very good care of good intake of history for early signs of symptomatology while combining an appropriate algorithm to how we test, when we test. Just knowing that you can't test constantly, of course, with PCR technology, it's just not feasible from any angle that you look at. And it is in our reality, despite a lot of the stabilization that has occurred in relation to PPE, that our supply chain is disrupted. And we can expect for it to be disrupted for some weeks and likely months and months to come. And even though things have stabilized, we've all done a lot of very creative, innovative approaches to make sure that we're able to stretch out PPE supplies to make sure that our healthcare workers' safety is always advocated for and always take into account of every process and every opening up of new services post-COVID that you dive into. And so the reality is that most all of us will be in some kind of fashion approaching PPE conservation methods for some period of time because of the supply chain disruption. And so innovative, creative ideas, the re-sterilization processes that many of us have been involved in, whether they're you know done through a large FDA approval process or something else that you've been able to get FDA approval for um, locally are part of our ongoing reality. So I would just add those additional comments to the question. Was there anything else that you wanted to add, Holly? I, I do. I was actually going to go down the same route that Dr. Bethel went down with um, PPE. I think that's something that um, the way we use our PPE and our safety and the safety of our staff, Those, I feel like that is this has been a, a game changer, people thinking about what they do and when they do it. Um, you know, running into um, a, an emergency situation. We had an emergency happen in our parking lot a week and a half ago and folks just run to respond and you have to stop people and remind them, you know, we don't know what we're going to and you need an N95 and, you know, you need to protect yourself because we don't know what's going to be happening. And um, those are things that, they, that don't come natural yet and that we need to have come more natural. But I also think there was a point in time you know where a nurse would start an IV without a pair of gloves without a second thought. and that has become something that we do quite routinely now. And so you know those things do, do will probably come into our practice. And I think that's what's going to start to change out of this. And some of the silver linings, I mean, there has to be something in there, is you know, talking about this. And um, as Dr. Compton Phillips said, uh, all this research based, every decision we've made over the past few weeks, You read all the research and you don't make a decision without thoroughly investigating what you're doing. And that's actually a very smart thing to be doing and to incorporate that into all the decision-making that goes on. And I think the thing that we can do here in New Hampshire as a state is, you know, when we look at this after the fact, we should look at how we could have responded maybe better as a state. You know, it's almost like every hospital for themselves. We talk collectively, but we never decided how to plan collectively. We're all doing what we need to do for our communities, and I think we probably could have done a better job about saying, here's who will do this and here's who can do that because, you know, here are all the resources we have. So I'm hoping that will come to be after the fact as well.
2: Yeah, just to pile on what you guys just said that, you know, in in my mind, it's it's been a real challenge that we're trying to solve this public health crisis with a private health system. And the way we can do that the most effectively is to really truly bring to life the concept of being a learning health organization or learning healthcare system across the country. Um, and I, I have been amazed at how we've been able to do that. You know, our internal data here within Providence, and I'm sure everybody's measuring this. um, If we look at our mortality of patients hospitalized in March, we had around 750 people discharged in March. We had about 750 people discharged in April across our system. Um, And in March, the mortality rate was 24%. In April, the mortality rate was 18%. And the reason that is, is because we learned, we learned how to do things better. We learned to use high flow oxygen and to, to prone people and to use therapeutic trials um, of, of different medications, um, and that and that we've learned that very quickly. By the same token, we've learned about how do you conserve PPE and use it in a way when there's a shortage that is um, both safe and effective, even though it's it's really scary for our workforce. But but um, in the same way that that we heard about at Banner um, testing caregivers, we've done the same thing, and our rate of antibody positivity, so indicating exposure to the virus, and our caregivers is running at about the same rate as is the community prevalence. And so the same thing, that, that we think despite the challenges that the PPE preservation policies are working. And so how do we keep learning that and how do we keep making sure that we're transparent with those learnings so that we can continue to build on them over time? And the last point is, Also, how do we go to universal precautions? You know, I happened to train during the era of of AIDS coming to being, and and so back in those era when people would put in an IV without gloves, um, and and we learned that universal precautions make a difference. And in this in this intermission time, in this in this period between Act One and Act Three, you know, this Act Two when we're trying to provide care and for everybody as well as provide care with COVID at the same time. Going to universal cautions and assuming people are COVID positive unless proven otherwise is probably what we're going to have to do, which means using PPE um, in very, very uh, conservative ways, um, in, unless we can demonstrate that somebody's COVID free. And so I think it's just going to be a very interesting several months until we get the vaccine. Um, you know. I'm saying several months to be hopeful. It might be a year until we get a vaccine. I know we're gonna have to live through fluvid in the fall um, in, in between now and then. So, so I think um, really thinking deeply about about how we make that happen in a way that keeps the healthcare workforce and the community safe while we continue to provide care is essential.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like there's really a huge emphasis on data and research driven decision making But then also on a larger scale, it seems like the pandemic is really health for healthcare industry, the sort of opportunity and moment to sort of look at all aspects of it and figure out how it can be improved across the board. I think that's really interesting. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit and just talk about uh, resuming elective surgeries. I'm curious, what has been the hardest part about either that actual resumption or deciding when to start? You know, what advice would you have for Hospitals or health systems who are sort of just now thinking about that or figuring out how to do it. Well,
1: so this is Margie. I'll start. So this is Marty from from Banner Health. I'll start with that. So I, I think uh, for a lot of us, and I'll speak for for Banner Health, of course, um, some of this is not necessarily driven by your own health system decision and, and rationale, but uh, driven by state and governor, uh, dictums, executive orders, et cetera. And so a lot of our resuming of surgeries has been opened up through release of executive orders in the states where we operate. And of course, some of that is done through collaboration and conversation between those that are in the healthcare delivery system and, and uh, our governor and uh, other Department of Health Services in conversation about what we're all seeing, what we think we can reasonably be able to do and you know as already outlined previously it is just an absolute fact that our patients and our communities need us they need us to both take care of those that are afflicted by the COVID-19 disease as well as those that continue to have either chronic disease acute on chronic disease or acute disease, um, they don't take a rest, they don't take a break just because there is a pandemic. And so it is our absolute new reality that we're going to have to manage between now and when there's vaccine and or significant treatment options for us for COVID-19, this dichotomy of patient populations. And so having a very rational approach um, so that You're not over-consuming PPE, thinking about, you know, what subsequent waves may or may not look like for all of us while you're still taking care of those in the communities that you serve. Um, Some things I think that we have done uh, should remain in place, I I believe, with uh, uh, congruence with some of the comments from Amy previously, that we've learned a lot of things and we've done a lot of things really rapidly that are probably going to be some of our new best practices And then there are some other things that perhaps will never go back to the way that we were. Um, I think about some of the things that we've done with visitor restrictions and what life was like before COVID. And I wonder if we're going to probably land somewhere in the middle of that versus going all the way back to the way that we were before. I also think about different ways that we can round, and perhaps that would be same for those that are in different types of precautions. Certainly, we all have people who've been in precautions for MRSA, VRE, C. diff, um, influenza and RSV season, et cetera, and perhaps there's different ways where we can limit traffic in the room that will be a good new best practice for us that still allows us to take really excellent care of our patients but maybe do so in a way that we're not constantly utilizing a PPE and or room traffic, similar to what we all do in our ORs, right? We know that a lot of traffic in the ORs are not necessarily good for infection control, and perhaps there's some other practices that we're learning about that will be applicable in our new environment. And certainly one of the rate-limiting steps, in addition to what I've talked about for resuming elective surgery, Uh, in a safe way is making sure that you have adequate testing as we've all come to learn about the asymptomatic individuals and what the viral shedding can be and how that can be potentially very harmful to our healthcare workers if not aware wearing appropriate ppe etc having an adequate and appropriate preoperative testing algorithm that is available that's sustainable into the future is going to be a very important component of creating an environment for resuming of those surgeries And then I think lastly, and it was touched on in some of the other answers that we spoke about previously, is winning back the consumer's mind and heart around their own safe care. Certainly, we know by some of the statistics um, that were talked about from Providence perspective and what we're all reading about in the literature, that there are a lot of people out there who are afraid to come to see us even when they really need to. Their outcomes are not being as optimal as they could be because they're afraid to come get the care that they absolutely need. And so we need to, as healthcare delivery systems, be able to very specifically articulate that safety is the absolute top of our list and tell them and show them all the things that we're doing to keep them safe when they do come back to have elective surgeries or procedures with us and how we're committed to doing that over the long run. So those are some of my observations and things that we've thought about in resumption of those surgeries and procedures. Just to to, to follow up on that, we have noticed in the state of New Hampshire it, uh, a dramatic increase over the last two weeks in um, ICU admissions, and I think it piggybacks right on top of that of people waiting too long. They were afraid to come to our EDs, they waited too long, and now they're here now, and now they're really really sick. And so this is we're seeing this statewide. We're seeing it in the the bigger facilities and we're seeing it in the small critical access that people really just waited way too long to come seek help
2: yeah i um i totally agree uh with with uh, avoiding waiting and regendering trust in the healthcare system making sure that we have appropriate um, pretest algorithms but i'd love to also go back to one thing that margie said and and have a counterpoint um and and not only from patients that we've heard about, um, particularly patients close to the end of life, having limitations on visitors has been heartrending for families and for the um, teams that are caring for them. And you know, iPads and FaceTime go a long way, and they're not the same thing as having your family gathered around you at a time when there's um, there there's such trauma happening um, to individuals. Um, I also happen to have a brother who's deaf that reads lips. And so having universal PPE for him, um, he he at one point had to be in a hospital with everybody uh, with, you know, in isolation and he couldn't communicate with anybody. Nobody could communicate with him. and And it is that the barriers that the precautions we put in place because we have to right now are real barriers for our patients and for their families to ensure that we have a healing environment And so as we move forward we're going to have to figure out how to balance healing the psyche as well as healing the body Um, and it's going to be challenging because what we're doing right now works and it's what we have to do when there's no treatment for a germ that you get and it's really tough to live with Um, the other thing i think that's going to be really uh, uh, very much rearing its head over the next few months until this pandemic is cured Um, is to deal with the mental health effects um, that it's, so it's not only people in the hospital separated from family that are stressed, our own caregivers are stressed and exhausted and coming up with PTSD because of what they've seen in their facilities, as well as the people at home, um, that we know that substance abuse, depression, um, anxiety, uh, and uh, even suicidal ideation seems to be all spiking at the moment. And so, making sure that we're not only dealing with the pandemic itself, but we're dealing with the secondary effects—not only the physical, but the mental and emotional—is going to be something we have to think through.
0: I think that ties in uh, to my next question very nicely too. So, let me stick with you for that. How are how is Providence, um, you know, thinking about employee well-being and mental health? Uh, what services or you know? Programs have you found most helpful um, to supporting employees during this time?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, we started early on thinking about it. And so we, um, in in at the peak of the pandemic, we actually put a paycheck protection um, program in place. We upped um, child care benefits. We had no copay COVID testing and full uh, uh, coverage for salary for anybody that had to go on furlough. And now as we have started coming down the backside, we're starting to take some of those like just physical programs away and, and, um, we're starting to ramp up something that we started building and now we're going all in on, and that's our caregiver wellness program. So we've built tools that, um, are accessible on our intranet for our own employees, where, where employees go on and rate themselves on a scale of one to 10. Of how stressed they are, with one being not at all and ten being, you know, suicidal. Um, and then we have tools that patient that caregivers can access, um, depending on how stressed they are. And so, like if you're one to four, it can be anything from order a book, um, you know, here's here's a website, uh, how to, how to you know, do deep breathing exercises. Um, to having something we call telespiritual health, where you can connect with a chaplain. And believe it or not, that's our number one thing that people are connecting with chaplains more than any other options our telespiritual health um, function. In the middle numbers, um, you can actually access our online tools for online cognitive behavioral therapy um, with a couple different web apps. And as you get higher up in the numbers, we have a telebehavioral health on demand, um, real time person to person cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that has ramped up dramatically in this crisis. It's something we started before, but rather than you know getting a referral to an EAP program, you can actually connect directly with a therapist. Um, and that's been a huge benefit. And all the way at the top, it's it's direct referral to a suicide hotline, which we fortunately knock on wood have not had to do dramatically yet, but it's it's all part of trying to ensure we have a continuum of tools and capacity to help um, physical, mentally, emotionally, spiritually for our caregivers.
1: Yeah, so Nicole. this is Margie, and I would echo um, a number of those programs that we have available at Banner Health. And what, what we're finding um, so far during our response to this is some of the things that our healthcare workers need who are at the very front lines are things that are sort of those, those simple activities of life that become very difficult when you're working, when you're stressed, when you're concerned. Um, you're going through perhaps extra activities after your shift of, uh, you know, washing everything immediately, taking a shower, all these additional activities that people are undertaking. And so throughout some of our responses, we've had a lot of volunteerism that's been very helpful in this realm. So things like hotel chains, donating hotel rooms, um, others donating meals that can be delivered to our healthcare workers to try and reduce some of the burden that they feel of being on the front line and potentially taking illness back to their family, as well as some of those just daily activities that become more difficult when grocery stores are not like they used to, when you know cities and towns and states are locked down. But very importantly, along the line of maintaining the emotional and mental wellness You know, this has always been a uh, very large platform for me. We've we've had a program specifically for physicians and APPs who suffer a lot of stress, as do our nurses and other frontline workers, and we're finding that there's also a lot of those out in the community that want to support our healthcare workers. So we've had a lot of individuals come to us and say, look, I'm a psychologist, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a professional coach and I wanna help your healthcare workers. And so we found some of that volunteerism to be very helpful to us. We've done some group coaching calls, um, just some group debrief type calls, and we're finding that even with the physical distancing that we need to do that we can reduce the social distancing that comes with that through some of those mechanisms with some individuals who have a lot of professional accolades and, and training to be able to support some of those that are on the front line. In addition to that, you're finding that there's a lot of folks in the community that also want to donate. Um, In addition to donate their time or their services, like I've highlighted, we have individuals wanting to donate dollars to support ongoing COVID operations, COVID recovery, and support for our caregivers. So our foundation has done a great job of interfacing with that and and helping us tell our story of what it's like to be a healthcare delivery system, what it's like to be a frontline caregiver, and the types of things that we need now and the types of things that we're going to need ongoing. Um, So those have been some of the additional activities that Banner Health has been able to do and I think it's just such a great um, just you know a great story to tell about the volunteerism and the foundation and the donations that are coming forth to support our delivery system as well as our frontline workers.
0: Yeah, it's great to see that there's such a spirit of support from so many different angles. Well, doctor Cumden Compton-Phillips, I know you have to log off shortly. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us and participating in the conversation. It's been a pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you so much for the chance. And Holly and Margie, I look forward to meeting you in person at some point during a post-COVID world. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Perfect. Well, Holly, let me turn the floor
0: over to you. Um, is there anything else you want to add in the realm of employee wellness or um, you know, what initiatives are going on at Cottage Hospital?
1: Well, in terms of employee wellness, to echo the thoughts about volunteerism, that ha- really has touched the hearts of all of us. Um, the community coming forward with everything from making you know, the cloth masks um, which we have decided um, because we're using surgical masks for our staff um, that we have laundered those, and we hand those out to uh, visitors when they come in, and we have uh, provided them to some of the um, the stores in the community where we noticed that many people were working without any sort of protective device. Um, we've had people donate food. We've had people who, you know, want to make a difference in every way, shape, or form, and I think that that's really um, a positive thing when you can involve the community like that. And being in a rural hospital, that's something that we have is this huge sense of of community. Um, And, you know, that sense of burden is there. We have, you know, nurses that are during the day homeschooling their children now because the the kids don't go to school and then they're coming to work their shifts at night. And it is overwhelming. And we've tried to do things even as simple as um, in our our cafe, um, Selling milk and things like that, so people don't have to go to the store after work. We do um, prepared meals, so that you can take home a dinner for four for ten dollars and be able to feed your family without having to worry about that additional thing. And those, just those little things, just mean so much to staff. And also communicating a lot. Um, that's something I heard very early on. is people wanted to know what was going on and they wanted information, um, and I think that that helps um, give them a little bit sense of the security of what, what is going on? What are we thinking? Um, what do our PPE supplies look like? Um, I know that's a big worry. You know, They hear about things going on around the country with, where there's not enough gowns or not enough masks. And so just being very transparent about what we have and, and here's what we're doing and here's the plans, I think, has been very helpful.
0: I think that communication piece is, seems like it's a big part of it, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so I think in healthcare, you often hear sort of the idea that caregivers um, you know, need to be taking care of themselves before they can care for patients. But I think the same also goes for leaders needing to make sure that they are okay and you know, doing well before they can take care of and help their own team. So I'd love to talk just a little bit about self-care right now. How are you handling your own you know, large priorities right now as clinical leaders with your own self-care amid the pandemic in such a busy time?
1: Starting very early on in this, um, I think that the inclination is just to be here 24-7 and showing staff that you're here for them. And my CEO was constantly saying to me, I want you to take a day off this week. Make sure you're taking a day off this week. But you have that sense of having to be there, and I think it would have caused me more anxiety to not be here. But the one thing I do do for myself is I get up very early in the morning, and just before the sun comes up, my dog and I go out and we run. And we run and we run and we run, and that is what I do to uh, keep myself where I need to be. That's my time.
0: Love
1: that. Yeah. So, and what about you guys? So this is, yeah, sort of a similar theme. So uh, we've done a lot of uh, telecommuting, um, as as I think many others have, to so continue to reinforce the need for social distancing when you can and, and have learned to be, I think, quite effective with some of those modalities. And so... With less of car time and commute time that opens up some other time that I've been able to take advantage of. Uh, my husband is a great support to me. My dogs have never been walked or run as much um, as they were uh, during the COVID response. And, you know, I've learned to use those same tools that I'm using at work for other things. So I have family that's um, quite distant from me, and many of them are sheltering in place. Uh, some of them live in New York state. So, uh, you know, some extreme activity and a lot of uh, governor interactions there. And so we've utilized some of the same tools of Zoom meetings and other things like that to try and stay very connected, because it's a shame that as we've responded to covid that social distancing has become the term because really it's physical distancing. And so um, trying to just do the physical distancing while not doing social distancing is really, really important. So just trying to use a lot of different tools and um, some of the time in a different way from pre-COVID activity.
0: I really love that differentiation between physical distancing and social distancing. I think that's a great way to put it. I think we touched on Um, you know, some ideas of this next question a little bit, um, looking at opportunities to improve healthcare after the pandemic. But I'm curious, just on a broader scale, you know, what do you think the lasting effects of the pandemic will be on healthcare and its reshaping?
1: Wow. Uh, That's a hard one to come up with, a very concise answer. I mean, there's so much to consider. And I think even one year ago, I don't think any of us could have pictured this or this playing out for, you know, indefinitely in time. And so it's very hard to think about, you know, uh, the future, but it's also for me how, now hard to fathom a future without thinking about COVID and, you know, what that's going to look like with the flu in the future and just always having those those um, questions about safety in there and, um, and how we go about processes and making decisions. Um, I think some of the things about, Even um, it was touched on earlier about our supply chain and about being ready and about having, you know, vendors that are are producing what we need and access to the things that we have to have so that we can do this safely. Um, There is a lot to consider there in the future. Yeah, this is Margie. I would agree with some of that. I I think there's some things that we have learned throughout COVID that were on our playbook, you know, to-do list, but COVID has certainly accelerated that. So we've talked a little bit about the use of televisits um, in reducing traffic even in hospital rooms for patients that are in precautions and of course the use of tele to try and keep people at home who had mild symptomatology who really were going to be much safer there has been a big wave of what we've been able to accomplish and certainly some of that was also augmented by payment, um, payment uh, mechanism changes etc and so i hope as we reshape healthcare in the future and learn from some of this that will continue to drive um, that some of these in-person visits that have been such a component of healthcare delivery uh, will will no longer be done in that fashion or a portion of them, you know, can be done in the fashion that we've learned how to do during COVID. I think from the patient and the consumer perspective, um, there are realizing some of the benefits and you know are probably going to come to us and say please don't waste my time you know i, I shouldn't be in your space you know i can be much more effective um, and productive in my workspace or in my home space without all the travel that it takes there's a lot of things that we can do asynchronously etc to keep me safe and to get my health care needs met so i would hope that we reshape healthcare in a way that was always in our playbook but um, perhaps the timing and the timeline of it was more protracted. And we've certainly been able to show that we can shrink that significantly, but certainly some of the um, payment methodologies and all of that will need to remain aligned to support that. I also think that you know, to the comment about influenza season, et cetera, that we've learned a lot about healthcare worker overall health is really key. And not coming to work when you're ill, although always something that I think we've all talked about we've never taken as seriously as we have now. So taking temperatures, having people attest, um, having it be okay to call in ill, thinking about even some of our own policies of how many days you can call in ill before you're in some kind of corrective action, et cetera, probably all need to be revisited in a way that they have been with COVID and perhaps in some shape. Um, hopefully mostly intact become our new reality that without our healthcare workers being safe and being healthy we really can't do the work that we need to do and we need to safeguard um, their own health and we need to make sure they're not coming to work ill and infecting both our patients but also their other co-workers in a way that doesn't allow us to have an adequate workforce when we have other surges like most all of us do during respiratory-like illness etc and then I think the other thing of um, when you think about healthcare and the the interface between subject matter experts in healthcare and policymakers at the government and FEMA and federal levels, et cetera, that we're seeing that subject matter experts are key. They're needed. We need to have forums where they can, can continually tell us what they're seeing, what they're thinking, what the science, what the data is showing us, and help them really have a great platform to continue to drive overall policy we've all seen some of them on the national news and they're very very expert in their field and um, listening to them and having them guide us through these types of challenges that we have in healthcare will always put us in a better position to respond in a way that helps us take care of the most number of individuals in the safest possible way while keeping our healthcare workers safe regardless of any type of insult or challenge that we have. Well,
0: Holly, Dr. Bessel, I think those are both wonderful insights for us to wrap up our panel on. Um, Thank you both so much for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing such thoughtful remarks. Um, And thank you also to our audience um, for watching and participating in the first ever Becker's Virtual Health IT Clinical Leadership and Pharmacy Conference. If you submitted any questions or comments through the Q&A box of the presentation, Um, and they were not addressed today, we will be sure to follow up with you and get you those answers. But on behalf of Beckers, please stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope you all have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank Thank you, take care.